Hey, Shuang here. Thanks for tuning in to Shopify Masters. I hope you've been enjoying Shopify on Location. It's a new mini series featuring merchants based in the United Kingdom. And we've got another great episode for you right now. Enjoy. If you go through one a month, you know, that's 12 packages of plastic that you're throwing away. And we felt like we could create something that you not only kept for life and that was going to be sustainable, but that was going to be interesting and fun and bright and colorful and exciting. Hello and welcome to this special episode of Shopify On Location. I'm Shuang Esther Shan. Okay, I'm asking for a favor today. Take an inventory of your bathroom. What's in there? Shampoo, body wash, deodorant, maybe all your skincare? Kind of crazy that they're mostly in plastic containers, right? That's exactly what Charlie Bowes Leon and Freddie Ward thought. Charlie and Freddie are childhood friends turned business partners, and they had a simple idea. Get rid of all that single-use plastic. Together, they launched Wild in 2020, and their first product, a refillable deodorant stick. Charlie's here with me in London today to talk about how this simple idea grew into a multi-million dollar personal care brand. Thank you so much for being here today, Charlie. Thanks very much for having me. Tell us why tackling this problem of eliminating waste from the bathroom was so important to you. So I think we looked around the house and everything from kind of fashion to the kitchen and There's a lot of concentration from several different companies now on creating more sustainable clothes. Lots of really interesting companies creating different washing tablets or kitchen stuff that that you'll use that basically eradicates plastic and is using natural ingredients. And we just felt when you looked at the bathroom, there was no one really tackling plastic waste in there. And, And if you think about it, you've got, you know, as you said, everything from shampoo and conditioner and shower gel through to toothpaste and deodorant and and loads loads more and most people's bathroom is absolutely packed full of plastic and part of the problem is most people have a, a bin in their bathroom which is separate to the bins that they normally keep in their kitchen and in their kitchen they might have a recycling bin maybe a compost bin and, and a, a kind of normal bin but in their bathroom they've only got uh, one bin and uh, most people just put that bin into the kind of normal rubbish so very very little plastic in the bathroom gets recycled even some of it which which can be recycled and we felt like you know, not only did we want to reduce that problem and, and bring aware, awareness to it, but we felt like we could remove plastic or even, you know, single-use materials completely and just find stuff that was compostable or widely recyclable and that that could make a, a kind of big difference to the, the sort of end game of reducing plastic from our oceans and, and dumps. Tell us about your first product, the refillable deodorant. What sets it apart and how different is it by using it? It's really different, I think. I mean, if you think stereotypically of deodorant, they're quite boring products. They've all been mostly the same, typically a a kind of antiperspirant spray-on or or stick that not much has changed in in decades, basically. And actually, a natural deodorant has existed for for decades as well, but historically has had a a kind of really bad reputation and uh, for for not working and the efficacy basically um, being non-existent. So we set out to create, firstly, 
and and I guess most importantly, a, a kind of formula that actually worked, that people felt comfortable in. You know, for example, if it's a hugely hot summer like we're having, people can feel like they don't need to reapply their deodorant every single hour and be reliant on on something that's made out of natural products that ingredients that they've heard of, rather than the typical antiperspirant where it has kind of long chemical names that no one knows what they are. I think obviously the the biggest change is the sustainable angles. So there are good products out there, good natural deodorants out there now, um, but most of them come in this sort of single-use plastic packaging. And if you go through one a month, you know, that's 12 packages of plastic that you're, you're throwing away. And we felt like we could create something that you not only kept for life and that was going to be sustainable, that but that was going to be interesting and fun and bright and colourful and exciting. So it was sort of a, a twofold product. One where we wanted to, you know, basically create something Instagrammable that people would happily share about. And secondly was was the the sort of sustainable element. So you obviously get your case which lasts for a lifetime and this is made from aluminium um, which is also widely recyclable and then your refills so every month or a couple of months you get your refills through the post uh, or in Sainsbury's or Boots and this uh, the packaging for this is made out of bamboo pulp and this is a, a really great ingredient because it's essentially bamboo like grows like a weed it grows super fast it can be composted, so if you put it in your garden compost, it will break down in, in about 12 to 18 months. You can grow plants out of the empty cases, you can recycle it. So it's, it basically will cease to exist within a couple of years, and, and that's what we wanted. So, you know, the idea simply is you keep your case and you just keep getting refills and you contribute no waste at all. One aspect, like you mentioned, is the impact it will have on the reduction of waste. The other side is all the fun flavors, I want to say, or the fun scents that you have, and they change so often. So tell us about a bit of that strategy behind that. Again, this ties into, you know, what has historically been a really boring product, deodorant, um, and trying to revamp it, make it fun. You know, why should they all have that kind of chemically smell? Why can't they smell of things like we just released a a passion fruit martini scent? Some of our more wacky ones, we did a a toffee apple scent in for Halloween. Uh, We even did a a lemon meringue pie scent a, a year ago as well. And People, you know, some of these sound crazy and some of these, I, you know, I don't necessarily want to wear myself because it's not something that I'm I'm into. But people want to smell of different things. They like the idea of one day being able to smell a toffee apple and then the next day being able to smell of something more normal like lavender or jasmine or something. So we felt like um, not only was it good in terms of giving people more choice and a little bit of colour into their scent or their deodorant scent but it was also a way to like engage new people or different people and I think the great thing about being in a direct-to-consumer business is we don't just sit there and sort of come up with wacky things and think uh, maybe they're like this let's try it we get all this data and feedback from our consumers so we ask um, our Facebook or our Instagram groups you know what do you want us to create what do you want to see and they will come back with uh, answers and sometimes they're absolutely crazy and sometimes they're not and we do our best to kind of create the most popular requests and uh, yeah go from there so it's a it's a sort of 
full circle approach to to marketing these products where it's kind of the ideas come from the consumers and then we we kind of hope that that resonates to the wider market. It's a very community-driven company. And I think what's interesting is that you and Freddie took over a year to launch Wild. So what happened in that time and what was that process like trying to build up a community and build up hype for Wild? We took over a year for, for a couple of reasons. The first was product innovation. I think we naively thought, how hard can it be to create a natural deodorant? You know, it's been done before. But it took us a long, long time to to get one that we were happy with. And I think we went through 35 different iterations of the product, testing each one. Some of them didn't work at all. Some of them gave us rashes, you know, all all sorts of stuff. Before we finally landed on one which we were, like, confident we could give a a sort of 100% guarantee or your money back. That took a good 12 months. And then, likewise, the case and mechanism, again, naively, we thought, um, you know, how hard can this be to create? Turns out it's actually incredibly difficult to remove plastic from packaging and and this is why everyone uses plastic because it's it's an amazing material that can just about do anything so we actually worked with a, a sort of industrial design firm called Marama who were all, also a startup and with them came up with with the kind of case concept but yeah that that took a long time both of those projects took a year and and, and that's part of why it took so long the other side was funding so all of this obviously cost quite a lot and when we first went out for funding we didn't even have a product we had some drawings the idea and the kind of promise that we would be good at marketing and and knew how to to kind of sell a product and create a a kind of respectable company and that's a pretty hard story i suppose for, for potential investors because if you can't even show them the product it's very difficult for them to imagine and before we launched our, our product, I think the size of the natural deodorant market was something like in the UK five million pounds a year. So, from their perspective, they were like, "So the maximum your business could be is like five million pounds." That's not got much potential as a business. And I think what they couldn't quite grasp is that we weren't going out to take market share; we were going out to create market share. So we were innovating something that didn't yet exist, and we were going to create our own market. And that's what we've done. So it took us six months to get our very first round. And that was a lot of work, something like 15 or 16 different investors, angel investors on board. And then the the capital we got from that, which was half a million, allowed us to basically launch the product and and go from there. And then we did, you know, a couple more raises after that. But it was a long, long process. And I think much more difficult than we probably initially anticipated and more expensive as well. I did want to touch Uh, upon the fact that you said there was 35 iterations. Um, How did you find the right production partner and someone who's able to execute your idea into an actual product? This is a real challenge. It's very difficult when you are basically a, a tiny, tiny startup to convince the people at the manufacturers who generally are manufacturing massive brands to spend quite a lot of time and money from their side on trying to iterate a product for you. We've been through three or four different manufacturers since since we launched. And obviously, each of those manufacturers was, was set up for the stage we were in. So the very initial one that decided to work with us was probably the third or fourth we'd actually tried with. And they were willing to put the time in and help us 
find or create this natural deodorant that, that could actually work. And then obviously, as we grew, suddenly we're a much more attractive prospect because, you know, we are manufacturing every single day now. And, and our, our first order was, I think, 20,000 units or something. And I remember a couple of our investors um, were like, you know, you're crazy to be ordering that many. Like, what if it doesn't work? You're going to be sitting on 20,000 units. And I think we sold it in a couple of weeks or something. So it went went very quickly. I also want to zoom in on the aspect of you mentioning pitching investors and also essentially pitching manufacturers while you had no physical product. What was it about your story or your pitch that really spoke to them and finally got that first person on board? As I said, it, it was a six-month process, that that first raise. And initially, what we did is we reached out to a lot of different VCs. We didn't have an angel network at all. In fact, we knew pretty much no one. So we few friends who are successful in businesses. We asked them, do you mind int- introducing us to any kind of angel investors you have that might be interested in this? We obviously had uh, a deck and plan put together. And for every single angel we met, we said, please, can you introduce us to two more? And by the end, we'd spoken to I don't know, upwards of 100 different people. And I think the reason why angels work is because, A, they are probably investing most of the time slightly smaller amounts, but B, they're a little bit more willing to take a risk on something because for them, if it goes well and they believe in the project, the reward is huge like it's you know a big big return if if say we exited um in a few years or something i think also you know what they're looking for is belief in founders so do these guys know what they're talking about do they understand marketing do they understand metrics do they understand finance and do they understand how to create a good product and of course do they believe in the product and the problem that we're trying to solve yeah we brought on we brought on quite a few people who bought into that vision and pretty much all of them have have reinvested I think we were probably quite lucky to have angel investors instead of VC because we weren't we weren't ready for VCs at that point. And what was it about reaching to individual investors versus doing a crowdfunding campaign right off the bat? How did you decide which paths to take? So we actually did a little Kickstarter, but that that was more to launch the product. I think we did twelve k of sales or something i think basically it's hard again to crowdfund when all you have is drawings you know we made some videos and stuff but we had literally no money we were bootstrapped with a very very small amount uh so that means you can't invest in creating a decent looking video you know i'm not a videographer and nor's fred so to to get something that looked half good we would probably have to pay a couple of grand and at that point that's like a huge amount of money that we didn't have obviously neither of us had salaries at that point i was still in my old job for the first kind of half of a year of, of setting world up from when we incorporated it everything is very money conscious and if you're going to spend a couple of grand on something you know you need to be pretty sure it's going to make a big difference for example, I, I don't think we spent in the first year and a half of existence or of trading, I don't think we spent more than five grand on brand. We, we kind of created that all ourselves from, from scratch. There's probably areas that we could have been tighter on as well. And I, I do think it's super important for entrepreneurs or, or startup founders to learn to be as frugal as possible because that lesson needs to apply 
the entire way through the process, even now, you know, we constantly look at our uh, our cost and try and work out what we can cut and how we can be uh, more agile because ultimately if we, you know, keep expanding costs, then it's harder and harder to become profitable. And what a great tip to share. I'm chatting with Charlie Bose Lyon, the co-founder of Wild, the sustainable personal care brand reducing waste from bathrooms one product at a time. So I do want to dig into marketing more. So tell us about the things you did to actually build up this following on Instagram and Facebook initially. To begin with, when we launched, we were very, we still are very performance marketing driven. So, you know, obviously Facebook and Instagram, Google, um, we now use YouTube, TikTok, Reddit, um, a, a huge variety of channels, influencer. And I think in those early days, it was, it was to be honest, primarily Facebook, but we also did a lot of organic marketing. So before we even launched, we created big email lists. We went out and got involved in tons of different Facebook groups on Mumsnet, on you know any forum we could find, Cora, basically anywhere that we could speak to people and try and convince them that this was a product that they, maybe they should sign up to hear more about or, or, or purchase. So we pre-launched for a month in March 2020 before launching in April 2020. And because of that activity, we were able to hit the ground running really fast because we had built up a, a database of, you know, tens of thousands of emails. Um, so I think we did 100, 100K of, of sales in our pre-launch, uh, which just meant, gave us sort of real, I suppose, confidence that we did have a product that people actually wanted. And that meant that when we when it came to launch in April, we were happy to put sort of significant money behind our Facebook and Google campaigns. But yeah, I mean, those, those it, it was sort of relatively simple, I suppose, then in terms of launch, whereas now it's it's all about multiple markets, multiple channels, making sure you're not overly reliant on one single channel and hopefully multiple products and then kind of offline and uh, versus online. So what's interesting here is you said before launch, you had tens and thousands of emails collected for an email list. How did you make sure that someone engaging with you on a forum or on a group would give you your email? And like how much manual work was involved to make sure that happened? Uh, A lot of manual work. So I think we probably joined over 500 Facebook social groups. And that might be a, a recycling group in Brixton, or it might be, you know, I don't know, something in Yorkshire. They would all be sustainability focused. And we would go on and normally you have to ask the owner of the group or the moderators and say, do you mind if I post something in this group um, about my new product, it's sustainable, etc. If they said yes, then we we would do a little pitch and we'd probably have a, a type form or a link to kind of email sign up on the website and get their, their kind of emails that way so sometimes you know some of those groups would yield nothing and some of them would would be great we also created our own socials obviously and started producing content so that got some buy-in and we also created a a vip facebook group which we still have and this is this is really the group where we do a lot of our kind of consumer research and get sent ideas and case ideas and so on and that's got about um four thousand people now i think we do things things like scent clubs so we invite them to come to the office 
and smell a whole load of, whole load of the scents that we've produced and see which ones we should release, all that, all that sort of stuff. A big part of people buying personal care products is in physical stores. So, you know, they can smell it, they can try it. What kind of content did you make to make sure that people who didn't have the chance to try the product or smell it be confident to actually purchase it online? Yeah, so I think it's very emotive content. If you look at our brand across socials or our emails or the website, it's very bright. And I think we set out purposefully to create something that was the opposite, really, of what sustainability has typically been. Certainly, when we created this, when we thought of sustainable shots, we thought of dark greens and grays and kind of, you know, those sort of foresty colors. And we felt like that in some way was you know, not helpful for an online business because it it just doesn't stand out. It almost is is kind of camouflaged into the background of, of whatever, you know, Facebook or Instagram scrolling you might be doing. We set out to, to create these this sort of really bright and bold brand. And I think that's what we've done. That's used to, to get people's attention, stop them scrolling, to take a look at us. With a wider team, we're able to produce lots more content. So we did um, a big YouTube campaign not long ago with a, a, about a kind of polar bear who had a, a sex uh, kink about um, climate change and pollution. That kind of stuff, which is utterly ridiculous. And people are like, what the hell did I just watch? But they love it. And it gets hugely shared and it gets hundreds of thousands of views, millions of views. And that's the kind of stuff that grabs attention. And then people are like, okay, this is different, maybe I'll give it a try because it's not that sort of stereotypical dark green sustainable brand. It's actually something fun and it's making me feel good about myself. And, you know, likewise with the messaging, I think it's, we we set out with, you know, always saying we're not a brand that's going to go and make people feel bad about themselves and say, what are you doing? Look at all your plastic waste, you're a bad person. We wanted to set out and convey positivity good messages. So if you can make one small change by using our brand, that's great. No one's perfect. Everyone can make small changes. And we felt that as long as we could make help people make that change in a sort of positive way that was fun and that they would enjoy doing, then, you know, they would want to kind of stick with us. It's very fun branding and messaging. So, I mean, in the beginning, I too was wondering why would anyone want to follow deodorant company? But yeah, I totally get it now. So I understand initially you talked to groups and individuals who cared about sustainability in different forums. And I wondered, how did you move beyond the first set of customers and just reach a more mass audience with the brand? That's it, right? That That's the core of what we're trying to do. We're not trying to just appeal to people who are already into sustainability because that's not going to really achieve anything. Those people are already doing good things. To be successful, we need to be a mainstream brand. We need to be as well-known as Sure or Dove or any of these other like big, big deodorant names. And I think the key to success for any sustainable business is to create something that is as good, if not better, than the best in category that isn't sustainable. So for us, we set out to create a product that was, you know, had 100% efficacy, worked really well, at the same time was hugely convenient. It's a lovely idea to think that we could all go and refill all of our things from supermarkets every week, but realistically we don't, or most people don't. 
And so we needed to create something that was like super convenient. So, you know, you can get Wild on subscription. Um, it is uh, completely flexible. You can cancel at any time. There's no buy-in. You can get it once every six months. You can get it once every month, whatever you want. Like it's it's completely flexible. And I think that convenience and ability for people to not even have to think about buying deodorant really once they've set up their subscription is is hugely important yeah and then the the kind of look and feel i guess you know people genuinely want to show off their their product and that's an important thing because that's how we go viral and that's how they tell their friends about it and one of the biggest ways that you appeal to people who aren't already into sustainability is through customers referring their friends. And I think about 25 to 30% of our sales is, is, is through referral now. And that's just such a valuable channel because those people haven't been sold to by us. They haven't been sold to by an advert. They've been sold to by their friend, who they trust, who already wears the product. Uh, and they're much more likely to go and give it a go and they're much more likely to probably be open to liking it as well. So, yeah, lo- lots of methods, but um, I think all of those are, are probably equally as important. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about finances. We've talked a lot about fundraising and I feel like there's a lot of founders who are very excited and want to learn more about that side of the business. What are some tips you have for people that might be areas that they overlook when they're going through that process? A couple of tips I would give. I think the first one is to create a realistic financial model and plan that you think you can hit with relative ease. If you go ahead and pitch to an investor with a great financial model and tell them that you're going to do X and then do a tenth of it, you're immediately starting off with a bad relationship with with any investors that you get. And I think from our very first plan, we did something like 10 times what we said we were going to do. And and part of that was um, because we had a, a much bigger first year than, than we genuinely thought we would. But part of it was that we wanted to make sure we didn't over-exaggerate what we were capable of. And, and possibly that led to us getting investment slower than we might have done if we'd you know had a much bigger plan but I think it it just meant that we've never had to deliver bad results we've never had a bad quarter we've never had a bad board meeting and the relationship we have with our investors now is is great and I think basing a, a kind of financial basically what is a financial relationship on truth and realism is is super important so you know it's tempting to present absolute best case scenarios in these financial models but ultimately you're probably just going to shoot yourself in the foot by doing that. Other tips. So initially, I think, certainly with our journey, we had to really persevere. And what I said earlier, asking people for introductions is probably the single best thing we did and and the reason why we were able to raise our first round. So Wild is, I think, third year in existence and reaching the first million is tough, but it's definitely more tough to cross over the 10 million mark. And you guys did it in such a short amount of time. What are some things that really helped for you to reach that milestone? I'd actually say reaching the 10 million is probably uh, not the hardest bit. I think reaching 100 million is, is said to be the the really tough bit, which we haven't done yet. So I'll, I'll let you know, hopefully, in a couple of years. But uh, yeah, I think the some of the things you need to focus on in the early stages are being 
clever with the capital that you have. So as I said earlier, it's so tempting to go out and go and spend a hundred grand on an amazing brand agency and who are going to make you, you know, some incredible looking brand that you can show everywhere. But actually, if no one sees that brand, it doesn't make any difference whatsoever. Initially, it's all about acquiring customers as cheaply as possible and high-quality customers. And you need to work out what that is and, and how do you do that. Do you do that through Facebook ads? Do you do that organically? If There's loads of different ways to, to do this. And I think what we try to concentrate on is just small improvements everywhere. So to name a few when you're in a startup, cash flow is obviously a hugely important metric to follow. And one of the things we did was to constantly ask for payment reviews on everything. So whether that's like our Shopify payments or getting invoicing, getting larger payment delays so that we don't have to pay some of our manufacturers for 90 days. And that means we can get the product from them, sell it, get the money in and then pay them rather than paying them in advance. And having that sort of positive cash flow is more important, arguably, than becoming profitable, or at least important in terms of not losing too much money. And if you're growing, positive cash flow makes a huge difference because in theory, you can pay for everything you spent this month in three months' time. And in three months' time, you're larger than you are now. So your your cash in is greater than your cash out. Another big thing we've always tried to concentrate on is the, the conversion rate optimization of our website. If you spend... 10 grand on ads and you convert 1% of the people on your site and you can increase that to 2%, you literally double your sales without any extra cost. So we're constantly doing A-B tests or looking at ways to improve our website and convert higher and higher. And I think, you know, I think it's fair to say we've got one of the best conversion rates on our site in any business, really. It's it's normally around 7 to 8% and, and can go up to kind of 10% plus. So it's, uh, yeah, super, super important metric. And I was speaking with a friend who runs a, a sort of small startup the other day, and they hadn't really thought about that. And just the little changes they could make on their site made all the difference and trebled their business, and it didn't cost them anything extra to do it. So all of these little things, you should sweat, basically sweat the small things and don't uh, get sucked into paying large large amounts of cash for, for things that you shouldn't really be spending money on yet. I really liked how you mentioned the cash flow aspect. It's like you're building the business. You're also building this runway for yourself so that you're able to build the business longer without so much pressure. Tell me a little bit more about the things that you've optimized on the website that really helped. Maybe some apps and services that really helped you to optimize. We're on Shopify Plus and um, we use a uh, service called Recharge for subscriptions. As always, you know, when you start out, it's very hard to negotiate with these people or any of these services, whether it's them or PayPal or, um, you know, uh, any of the kind of payment um, services, because you've you've got little um, other than kind of a promise of, of more sales. So I think it's it has to be done stage by stage. And you have to do this, you know, at least every three months, every time you've grown, go back and ask for more. And so what we would do is, for example, with PayPal or any of our kind of payment services, we would say, okay, we've grown by X amount. Are you able to reduce your fees? And are you able to give us longer payment terms? And often the answer is no, but 
actually often the answer is yes, certainly on the fees side. So certainly with you know, recharge, we were able, the, the bigger we grew, the lower we were able to lower our fees. And if you don't ask on these things, you don't get. So you, you've got to just keep asking and, and persevere. And then with the website, I think there's loads of things you can do to optimize. One one kind of quite simple app to use that is really good for helping you see what customers are doing on your website. It's called Hotjar. And you can do all sorts of things with that. Uh, one being kind of heat maps. So seeing where people are clicking, where people are going on your website has recordings. So you can actually watch entire user journeys. And then really crucially, and I'd say this is like a, a big thing for um, a business, especially nowadays, is the post-checkout survey. A post-checkout survey means that you ask everyone, you know, where did you see Wild before buying it? And you can literally work out the percentages of sales that come from those channels and roughly see where you should be spending more money. So if, you know, 30% of your budget is going in Facebook, but 60% of your sales are coming from it, you probably need to increase your budget in Facebook and lower it somewhere else. That's definitely uh, one worth having. You know, it could be as simple as changing your CTA, your your button on the homepage, which gets people to buy from buy now to learn more or something and test those two against each other, split the traffic and see which converts better. But there's there's tons of tons of tests you can do, and we're we're running them twenty four seven, and it's exciting when you find a big one because it it can literally you know our size mean millions more in revenue for no extra cost. I like the fact that it's a constant iteration and it's a constant learning process as well. Yeah. I want to ask about your relationship with Freddie. You guys have known each other since childhood. How has your relationship changed now that you are also running a business together? Yeah, so we, Freddie and I grew up together in Scotland. I think we knew each other from the age of three. We actually hated each other when we were, when we were very young. I think we, yeah, we became good friends maybe when we were like 11 or 12 and then ended up going to university in Edinburgh together as well. So, and we lived together in, in, in uni. Um, so, yeah, we've, we've been very close friends for a long time. I think no business is worth ruining the friendship over. Let's sit down now before we launch anything and create some like clear lines of communication so if this happens, what we do, for example. So if we have a major disagreement, we know exactly what we need to do. You can take the emotion out and it can be like, right, we know we go to the board, the board vote on it, and then we go with what they vote on. We've been pretty fortunate that I don't think we have had any major disagreements, so we haven't had to do that. Fred looks after the the kind of operations and finance side of the business. I look after the marketing and tech side of the business. So it's... Uh, we have very clear um, and distinctive roles from each other. I would say in terms of our relationship, you know, if anything, we've probably grown closer because we see each other all the time. Yeah, I think it's probably been quite a, a bonding experience. I've just made him godfather to my, my um, baby. So, um, yeah, hopefully that, that's a good sign that things uh, haven't, haven't gone badly. We're, we're tied for life. Yeah, exactly. Whatever happens now is in my child's life, so probably have to stay friends with them. Well, thank you so much for being here, Charlie. Not at all. Thank you so much for having me. That was Charlie Bose Lyon, the co-founder of Wild. I'm Shwang Esther Shan. Come join us next time on Shopify on Location. <laughs> 